Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm at the Potato Merchant, a new place in Exmoor Park, and I'm with a new friend, or at least new interlocutor, Miriam Aziz. Am I pronouncing your names correctly? Uh, Aziz. Aziz, yeah. Aziz. Yeah. So, Miriam, why are you in the Potato Merchant? What brings you here? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, uh, I followed your lead, really. <laughs> <laughs> but I was only able to make my way through the door with the courage given to me by your presence, because I've tried, I've flirted with crossing this boundary, we unable to. In fact, we find ourselves outside, outside anyway. That's right, yeah. We, 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 we sort of made a brief appearance and then left. <laughs> we fled. We, we, our client, you know, our, our customership, whatever you say, yeah. needs to be desired. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it's true. hard to get. Well, I think it was, it, there was a difficult moment because the Waitrand and I are wearing the same stripe, so I right. think that led to some issues. Yes. But that's not why you're actually here in London. You're here to give, now, should I, what should I call it, a seminar, a performance, a talk? What's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a very good question to start off with. Um, yeah. I, I was struck by that. I was talking to uh, Professor Carl Sitchin yesterday evening, um, and I asked him about the formats. He said, you know, well, how long do I speak for? What Usual, um, the, the, the usual rules that you use and so on, and, um, and it struck me that it's very hard to to adapt what I do to a specific format in some sense because it's it's really it's a mixture of everything really. Um, but ultimately, it's I think everything that we do uh, is a performance, mm. and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just think that it has that performative aspect, sure. uh, more mm-hmm. more or less. Right, and you're doing this in the context of a law school, and you are. A choreographer, a dancer, a singer, a lawyer, a scholar. Are those reasonable <laughs> sets of categories to orient listeners? Um, I don't know whether they're reasonable. I mean, reasonably speaking, I'm a trained lawyer, yes, and um, a trained musician. And I then branched out um, into to dance and choreography uh, at, well, a couple of years ago now. And I, I, start, I came to dance very late. I started dancing Did you? about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, I always feel very uncomfortable describing myself as a dancer or a choreographer or indeed an artist because I think that, that that's one of the fascinating things. That, you know, what, what, not just what does that mean conceptually, but I'm also aware of you know, what are the rules. <laughs> yeah. sort of the legal mind kicks Lawyers in. have to be, don't they? they? It's <laughs> terrible. Where would you guys be without I know. Rules? You're always thinking, well, does that count? Do I count? <laughs> and so, you know, I, I kind of play on that a lot of my work and think, sure. well, what makes an artist? I mean, do you need to have trained at, a, at a, an art school, a music school, a dance school, um, you know, at degree level, uh, to be able to call yourself an artist? Um, mm. So there's the, there is a bit of that, that sort of tension that sort of you know, underlines what I do my work. So, I, no, no I, I, I mean, it depends who I'm with, but I hesitate. I always realise it's, it's easier to describe myself as a lawyer, because um, I think that I, I did the time. <laughs> you served your time. I served the time. And did so you I get out on good behaviour? <laughs> this is the question. And uh, thank you very much. Well, you're definitely a person of interest to <laughs> this podcast. Thank you very much. Um, but what is the word they, what is the expression they use in Britain? You are not being questioned under warning or under something else? <laughs> I'm not really sure. I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, oh, good question. Maybe. So, oh, it looks a bit big for me. 
Okay, well, can I have no butter but some So, what's the name of what you're involved in today? What's the event? Have you given yourself a title? I have. The um, well, the title is actually drawn from a, an academic paper that I wrote um, about my artwork, um, or the extent to which my artwork overlaps with my, my legal uh, scholarship. So, the title is um, Lost for Words. Um, colon or semicolon, um, embodying law through trans theatre and dance theatre. And so it actually um, tries to create a context or a scholarly context to the, the research I was doing in New York for, for the last three years, uh -huh. um, just four years. Um, and I've published three papers, really, the academic papers on, on my artwork. Um, so it's kind of, it's a funny, that's why it's a very funny uh, format in a way. Um, so um, I mean, I'm always, I've always been very interested how you can mediate ideas about law, um, ideas about anything through through art, mm -hmm. um, and I love looking at how it, how it can be done and looking at other artists. So I've always been very open to different types of you know it's way, different ways of seeing and different ways of creating. And sometimes you, know, you can find such such overlaps. Um, you know, people are asking themselves the same questions sometimes, but they address them differently. I like that in academia as well, um, you know, not just within a law school context, but amongst the different disciplines, mm -hmm. to try and see how people think, sure. how they reason. Um, what gets left in, what gets put out, yeah, the what, art, counts the art of knowledge, absolutely. what counts as knowledge, what counts as truth. And the art of editing. I think that, you know, the choices that you make um, define the work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, almost like I, I've, I've watched people um, edit papers, you know, when you're working on a paper with a co-author or for watching somebody work on, on a paper, I love to see them uh, edit it and, see, you know, and ask myself why did they, you know, delete that part and what, what, why doesn't that fit and what's the overall uh, plan, uh, if there is one. Um, and I think, because there's something that is, that is somehow universal in that, um, you know, if you're watching somebody at work and if they're really roasted in it, um, it can be very... Uh, experience because we don't see that part of what we do. No. You get the, the, the paper really presented, you watch the performance uh, you know, where it's been done. Now, it's only, it seems to me in the last couple of years people have been trying to render that part more accessible. You know, you've got sort of making of documentaries or you have people who invite uh, members of the public into rehearsals um, for dance or theatre pieces. And I think that's Fascinating because it's there's also something very vulnerable about it. You know, you can give yourself the, the license to make mistakes um, and to, just frankly share that moment of not knowing what you're doing, but somehow you need to do it. Mm. Um, I think there's a there's a tendency to hide that part, which is a shame because I think you know if you could share that sense of just not knowing what you're doing, um, hesitating, the doubts that you have, um, it would. Break a, somehow a, a wall down, you know, it would lead to less isolation amongst not just artists or scholars but just people, people generally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because it's not so much the information they'll tell you and say, oh yes, I have that problem. You know, you can sort of do a sort of problem solving approach or troubleshooting approach, and people, you know, you can swap story, you know, war stories and say, well, I had this problem, so I did this. But you actually get to participate in that moment of seeing somebody hit a wall and say, I don't know what to do. Um, and all of the, 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 the lab sessions of this performance arts laboratory that I set up, uh, called Artists at Large, all of the lab sessions deal with that, um, and they were all, uh, they were, they were all filmed. But it's not so much sort of having an archive of 
you know, tr trial and error. Um, it's really for the experience of seeing people um, reason, people see, seeing people just create despite reason. You know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fascinating moment, and I think that I had, it, I, I love to see that sort of transformation that, 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 that happens, not just amongst people who are doing it, but, but also people who are watching it. Sure. And tell us about the artist lab. What, what is it and what made you set it up? I think, um, well, I, mean, I, I think I like meeting people, actually. I just like to see how people... So it's basically Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> for the 21st century, <laughs> but it's not internet speed dating. No, Is that what you're no, me? I don't. Not really. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't, wouldn't go there at all. <laughs> Backtrack slightly. Um, no, it's, I think it's it's incredibly difficult to think outside of your own or beyond your own way ways of seeing things. Um, after a while, it's very hard to remain um, open. I think. I'm other ways of seeing and doing. Uh, so you know, it's great to go to a performance and you can maybe sometimes come away and be inspired about it and think like, you know, it might help you to, to, with your own work or just you know, somehow be more uplifting and inspiring. But um, it's something about the creative process or being collaborative, um, which I always used when I was teaching law as well, is I, I never talked at students and I never wanted to, uh, you know, want to dictate textbooks of them or my lecture notes and I thought that somehow they have to be there and they've got to be on board. So the Arts Lab, in a way, it's almost like a, an adapted, uh, what we used to call the case method um, approach to law teaching, which well, the case method came from US law schools where they would, you know, have these amphitheaters of 100, 150 law students who called upon to reason through cases. Um, Thank you very much. Here comes the heart-shaped marmite. That is heart jar shaped. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so I, I, I thought, well, it'd be fun to to set that up in a more sort of collaborative way, you know, artistically speaking. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, it's odd. It's odd to think now is to try and find a reason. But it somehow it just really, it just grew. It happened. Um, I was living in New York at the time, and I was going to all sorts of dance classes and performances. And I thought it'd be great to organise something, you know, where you could basically invite people that you came across, and if you ask them to, to collaborate, um, and have it also, you know, have it have it sort of structured, but at the same time have it sort of something which is improvised. People yeah. can also let go because you really get to do that as an artist because everything you do has to be somehow tied with a specific project in mind, and it's rare that you can just you know, doodle. Be together as artists. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, just try out ideas. Yeah. And, and you know, so much of art is relational. You know, it's how wide mm -hmm. the seminars, conferences, and the context. It's just great. If it works, you know, basically people are, are, are open to that. Um, you can really, you know, just grow, I think, as a, as a human being. Because also, it's very hard to meet artists from different um, different disciplines uh, in that type of context. Yes. And then also get to sort of see, see how it is that they would they would uh, approach something. You know, it's great to watch filmmakers become dancers and, you know, dancers pick up the camera and start to, to film or have to do the sound and the lighting. And, you know, you really rotate people until they start to understand what's it's a mall, so they get a more complete picture of the um, what it is that they do. Because yes. you, you really do that. I mean, as a musician, you, know, you, you turn up for the sound check, you rehearse, you perform during the concert, you go home, you'd rarely go to the other side and see what happens. 
That was all that together. Beyond my bit of it. Does that also suggest that it's quite a fluid composition, membership of the arts both in terms of the areas people come from and yeah. who they are. It's, I mean, it's what they call in New York a, a pick-up band. You know, <laughs> basically you draft people in um, tied to a specific theme. I mean, like every, every lab session had a theme and I had a structure and I had music that I wanted to try out or compose um, during the lab or after. So, um, because I'm also very mindful of the fact that my training was musician is that I, I always like to find ways of composing music. Um, and this is the first time I was using movement to compose the music and, and not the other way around. You know, not compose the music and say, here you are, now um, dance. But it was more to see the people uh, move. And then I would think, how would I translate that into music? Um, and that helped me because I, I sort of found what I was doing musically speaking was very repetitive and I was starting to, you know, I, I, I just thought, I, I don't know how to change this. Um, so I had to try something different. I was chatting to Miguel Mera the other day, who's a film composer, and he was, he and I were talking about why these musicians can never dance, even though they have a very strong sense of rhythm. He says that it's a chronic incapacity on the part of formally trained musicians. Mm. Sorry. Um, I don't know, I, mean, I think up to a point that might arise. Um, I think what I, my experience of musicians sometimes has been that they become quite closed off. You know, even in a group or an orchestra, um, they're not watch, they're not paying attention to the other musicians or the overall structure. Um, but that's why I love working with musicians in, in dance classes. And for me, I, I really feel like I, I work with them because if they're, if they're really good at what they do, they're watching the dancers all the time, they're watching the teacher, and they they, they collaborate. It's, it is a dialogue. You know, they're not just turning up the music. I mean, sometimes you see a, a dance you know, a dance class where the pianist turns up, opens a newspaper, and just plays the same pieces um, and doesn't really pay attention to anything else in the newspaper. And the, you know, it's the dancers have to follow or not. Uh, I mean, also most dance classes and now in average, you know, modern dance schools uh, use recorded music and so it's the same, you know, the same pieces. I was at a uh, class last week in Rome where the pianist was incredible because the pianist was basically trying to help the dancers who couldn't quite follow the music. You know, he was somehow out of not really in time, um, and that was wonderful because there was a real, there was a, there was a conversation going on. That's, that for me, that, that transmits such energy, uh, you know, such a, an incredible um, intention to do something. You know, with the hour that you have, you, know, you, you take dance classes every day, it's the same class, it's structured on the same lines, it's very hard to remain inspired by it. Um, you know, it really is not that interesting to do, which is one, you know, one level. But in my, in my experience, musicians who work with dancers are open to that. Whether they are good dancers or not, um, you know, I, I, yeah, up to a point I can see what he meant, but I also think that everybody dances anyway. <laughs> Just you have to find their, their rhythm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm less categorical you know, categorical about that. Maybe because I wasn't a trained dancer, you know, that I don't have that inbuilt in me. It's a very strict definition of what counts as dance. You just mentioned Rome. Is that where you're based at the moment? Yeah, I'm based at the moment. I'm based in Rome um, in mid-July. I moved back from New York in January. 
uh, I spent some time in Paris because I teach at uh, the University of Paris. But also, in Rome, it was a chance to get back. I'm, I'm based in Italy, so it was a chance to get back to Italy and spend six months pulling together uh, this project, this project that I premiered in New York, Oscar Works. I had the premiere in November. Uh, the soundtrack came out. Well, it's ready uh, three weeks ago. <laughs> so, which I brought the copy, I brought the copy of. Um, and I really need time to just get back and work on that. So, we do all the administrative um, side things. So, I mean, it's a one-woman show, so I have phases of creation, implementation, then administration. Yes. <laughs> so, so I'm constantly, um, you know, dedicating myself to those phases. Now, bits of Lost for Words people can find on the web, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, some of these, some, some of the extracts are on the, the blog that is dedicated to Lost for Words. Um, I did that actually. I decided to share the music early on. Um, I created an archive, uh, which is all of the you know the making of Lost for Words called uh, Where You Are With Me, because we filmed all of our lab sessions. And I think about the third lab session, I realised I was going to use the lab sessions to create a piece. Um, so I would make the music available and the films available online and ask people for feedback and send it out. And, you know, because I was really fascinated to what does this mean? You know, being, what does being lost for words mean? Uh, what does the art of remembering uh, entail? Um, you know, I've been asked, I've been commissioned to write a piece on law beyond text, which is, what, which is actually a UK uh, government finance project, uh, you know, the law beyond text project, um, at the, which is based at the University of Edinburgh. And um, whilst I was writing that paper, I thought it was really fun to. Um, to in a way feel as a question amongst the arts, but not just a question, you know, people can write you an email back, but actually, actually see that question being performed. So some of the feedback that I got, I worked them into the, the lab sessions, and I got people to make up storyboards, you know, make up um, arguments that we would then translate to movement um, and music. So that was really fun. It was really, and I realised how narrowly defined for me the art of um, remembering that the definition of testimony you know how I basically had so close to the text and I had to ignore all of these other methods and methods of communication and I thought you know once that starts to happen I just thought well how do we deal with that as lawyers you know and I, I had the experience of losing my voice um, you know, after I had a cold um, I couldn't speak for two weeks and I was told don't whisper don't do nothing basically silence and I was um, at NYU, I was going to academic you know, seminars and so on, and it was funny because I had to write everything down. And um, I suddenly thought, what would I do if I lost my voice as a lawyer and as a singer? <laughs> and yeah, it, it was it opened up a whole other world of communication because I couldn't um, I couldn't respond, and to some extent I felt invisible. Because I realised that the way that you carry your voice and your voice is is so much of who you are. And I thought, well. It's a very useful metaphor for what we do as lawyers, particularly as a practicing lawyer. You know, you carry the voice of somebody else, and uh, you give them a voice. And if somehow that doesn't happen, but you know that they don't have a case, or you know the case is in their favour, um, what happens to that? You know, so I, I just started to think about that, and um, as I was thinking about it, subconsciously it was coming through in, in the arts. The, the, the lab sessions. I mean, the lab sessions were really the, 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 uh, initially a way to let go and try and basically create something for its own sake. Um, 
And I started to realise, despite myself, my legal questions, you know, my legal training, so I can come through. I mean, there's a lot, these are not new questions, and um, there's something that I wrote recently, I said, you know, legal philosophy has you know, spent, spent the last centuries trying to think about these things, but they think about them in the same way, in a very text-based approach, and I just thought, well, given the fact that I'm so interested uh, in dance, filmmaking, theatre, um, and in a way, it's not so much that I'm interested in, somehow that's also my way of understanding the world and uh, communicating, finding a place in it, um, why not try to... Explore that. I guess it also relates to disability studies. It does actually, yeah. It's it's that is interesting because like, somebody else made that comment, and I thought, yeah, that that's. I mean, I, there there are, there are a couple of projects on disability in dance uh, based in the UK, Coventry University and Exeter University, um, and I looked at their project design, and I think that a lot of the questions that they're asking sort of tie into what I'm doing. Um, but it's, I think for me, I think it's, it's not so much disability, but it's different um, forms of ability. Well, the expression that people in the United States use like to use is temporarily able bodied taps. Right. It's just a matter of seeing these things on a continuum. To his credit, capacities one has. Some of them go permanently, some of them are never there, and some of them are never utilised, some, some of them are temporary. So, uh, yeah. All sorts of things happen. Right. There's a set of conventions of norms that gets broken as well as broken all the time. Well, I think that what strikes me is I think there's a very small percentage of the world population who are articulate enough to be able to express exactly what they mean, exactly as they say it, and exactly as they feel. I think, and it's a rare gift. I think probably poets are the only people who seem to have mastered the art of dis distillation, I mean, distilling exactly the you know, right, the right sentence in the right way, with the economy of space. And that's such a gift. And I often wonder well, what happens to the rest of us. You know, and, and I, what I find fascinating is that it hasn't been lost in words. And it can mean so many different things in different contexts. Um, and my academic work has actually focused on communication um, consistently. And I try to keep on medical, um, medical research. Medical research um, involving human subjects. And I kept coming back to you know, how. You, how can the law encourage good communication between the doctor and the patient without suing doctors all the time? And you know, that was part of my thesis of that. I thought that if you basically consent issues yeah, yeah. and human subjects research absolutely, but, but also if the, if the regulatory model is predominantly based on thought, um, that doesn't lead to good communication in my, in my opinion. And it's the same as that. I mean, I'm also an administrative lawyer, and so I was trying to find a way that the law could encourage good communication between public authorities and citizens. And there again, if you sue everybody or if you basically make people defensive, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, you encourage a more holistic, generous approach to, to communication. Uh, you know, because you also have to factor in fear and trust. Because, you know, in the doctor-patient relationship, patients most of the time are frightened. Um, hospitals also are frightened places. Um, administrations can be frightened places. Um, and they're having to deal with a whole subculture and a whole, you know, which includes a sub-language, right? Uh, we know, with ways of doing things, ways of expressing things. 
And I also found my walkthrough course administrations to be on the continent where you have to spend a lot of time and hospitals. I just so suddenly lost people. You know, where they were being taught at um, in, in ways that I thought was not very conducive to having to make decision decision collaboratively um, speaking and not just being told what to do. Um, and reacting against that in a very uh, you know um, antagonistic way almost by saying, well I can sue you if you don't tell me what I need to know. I just felt that wasn't really perfect. Chair of the Department of Nuclear Medicine at NYU once saying to me, You've got a PhD, haven't you? I said, Yes. I can't make up my mind whether we should radiate you or not. What do you think? And I said, Well, my PhD is not in nuclear medicine. And I, uh, my opinion is not terribly relevant here. On that score, you tell me what the cost and benefits are. I just can't make up my mind. I said, Do you have any children? He said, Yes, I've got a daughter. So I said, If you were your daughter, would you radiate? He said, No, without hesitating. So I decided I would follow that advice. But uh, it was really interesting in that for a moment I was brought into his college of cardinals simply because I was an academic, even though I knew. Absolutely nothing. Not told me. But I was deemed to be rational. And he could share his Absolutely. lack of knowledge uh, yeah. with me. I know. I've experienced it. It's fascinating. And what I find really interesting <laughs> is when they had next, when whoever you're speaking to knows nothing about you or your background, and they just make certain assumptions. Um, I allow those assumptions to remain. Because I think I want to see how you treat me. <laughs> I don't want to pull rank in any, particularly when I'm being talked to by a lawyer, I find that very interesting. How do you talk to somebody who you know nothing about? Um, they assume you know nothing about the law when you... Well, it's not so much uh, wanting to, to pull rank, but it's just, I think, it's such a good indicator of how somebody um, sees human beings or doesn't see them. <laughs> Or degrees of visibility. So I, I, I like that experience. I think it's very necessary. Yeah. If you're involved in, in public service, particularly um, you know, as a lawyer or as a, an academic. Um, Old school Maoism. Back to the collective farm for a bit of re-education. No, I wouldn't go that far either. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. But it is interesting to move away from a position of master. Yeah. Well, it's also when you move away from it, you qualify it. Because you still have authority, of course. Um, and you have a service that you need to, to give. I mean, it's not so much that you know, I was, you know, when I was teaching law students, also when I'm directing artists, uh, I don't um, make that, for me, it's a mistake to try and be friends with them or, or say, no, we're all equal. That's one of the hardest things to, to manage because you still, you're responsible for the overall enterprise. Um, have to maintain authority and you can't you have to qualify the authority and it's not absolute but it's still there because also particularly when you're directing dancers they can hurt themselves i was very i was very aware of that particularly in new york where most of them were not insured they had no health insurance so i found myself taking anatomy classes uh, spending a lot of time to work out safe ways of doing things just because i didn't want to be reckless about that um, with the same care you take the students is that you don't you push them but you don't push them to the point of um, breaking them and 
And I think yeah. even in, in legal education, I, I have seen that happen. Um, paper I, chase. Yes. Yes, and that's probably sometimes a you know, light version of it. I think that, well, I think law and medicine have had traditionally have had that type of um, approach to to education, particularly during the times of art schools or pupilage, or you know after because of the, house, the junior houseman's year, you know, the art, for, for the doctor is when they start to practice. Yeah. Um, you know, Hyper competitiveness. Well, I think it's downright abusive behaviour and bullying, uh, and, I, and I, I don't really see people perform that well. I think that, you know, there is a fine line that when you do have to push some people uh, and, and be, be um, coherent with that and not push them one day and not the next. And, and taking dance classes fascinating because also particularly ballet, uh, that's also a It's very disciplined, it's very rigorous. Um, it's completely not you know, unnatural for the human body. You see dance students thinking, gosh, what does it look like in the 20 years But I still don't see the logic of breaking people. I don't see it. Well, we see this in sports very powerfully. The notion of playing hurt, being a great honor, showing that you're an authentic whatever, being immensely powerful. To horrendous concussion issues, for example, broken bones, you name it, shortened lifespans. National Football League in the United States, where people are millionaires, and the brain injuries are extraordinary. But at the same time as this is a national scandal, and there are all these law cases that are going through the courts now, class action lawsuits, there is still the discourse of playing hurt and being a real man in this case. And the blue collar notion of how to carry on. I think the point is that has its version in ballet, uh, it has its version in modern dance, it has its version in medical. I think it has its version in every profession and every facet of life because I think that we all suffer. Um, there are these moments in life where you really don't know what you're going to do. I, mean, I think there are certain things that we, we do to ourselves that have done to us that you really, you know, are just around us. And so I wouldn't say that, you know, artists or you know, talk to artists or talk to sports people um, have a monopoly of it. And certainly, we can all say, well, at least they get paid. <laughs> Some cases, I mean, you know, for the football players, they get paid like, huge amounts of money. Um, I sort of wish that I, I, I differentiate about the art on that basis. It's just that I think that I ask myself the question: Why is it we're, that we're attracted to, to, to seeing suffering? Um, is it because we it, it, we acknowledge it in ourselves? That's a way that we acknowledge it ourselves. You see, for example, making of documentaries, documentaries about dance companies or dancers. There's always a part where you see their, you know, the, the injuries they've had. You see them, you know, uh, a bit desperate and depressed and crying and, and somehow it's, that's, that's part of the story and, and people really respond to that. Um, the and the it, love of the Black Swan fiction feature right, film right, that's story like a, would be an example yeah, like a cartoon, yeah, pro, yeah. But also Frederick Wiseman's documentaries from a lawyer's perspective on huge array of institutions including operatic and balletic. would make a point, I think. Well, it's also though they carry that, you know, they sort of make a place for it, and I think that 
in the day-to-day lives that we lead, we, we don't have time and we don't make time to acknowledge our vulnerability and our injuries and uh, our regrets. But Mary, you know, you sound like you are, you know, doctor, professor, lawyer, perpetual motion. <laughs> the only time you take a break is when you take an anatomy class or when you lose your voice. I mean, I'm not I, even then. Doesn't sound like it. You're feverishly making these notes to participate in the seminar. I mean, no, well, actually, I have to say. Um, I, mean, I, I had this very curious experience a few weeks ago. I lost the hearing my, my right ear um, after a call. And um, so I had to go to hospital and you know, try and work out what was going on. And it was a fascinating experience at one stage. I was surrounded by people who have you know, hearing difficulties or who are deaf. And I was watching the way they communicate. And you have to watch the person. You can't, obviously, if the doctor is behind you, you can't hear what they're saying or what you can't make, make, make it out. So I sat there and I thought, this is an amazing performance. It's amazing lesson also in courage because you see people who, who, who also need to work out what's going on, work out their treatment, uh, you know, possibilities as well. And even there, I forgot that I was patient. I just sat back and I was just thought, this is incredible. Yeah, this is another facet of, of lost words that I, I couldn't imagine. And here I am, I'm seeing it in action. Um, and you know, I, I was struck by the way that people were just having to adapt in real time. You know, it wasn't sort of like, well, you know, you can take your time and then come back and then you'll work out how you can participate in communication. You know, well, how can you communicate if you can't hear this? And so they were, it's just watching the concentration of the patients, the doctor's expression, that was just amazing. Yes, everyday semiotics is an incredibly important gift, isn't it? And we don't, we don't value uh, that, I think. We certainly don't, don't uh, make a case for it. And so, and so there again, it just made me laugh. So I thought, whatever happens, um, it never stops. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that, is, that people say to you a lot. They say, you know, you seem to be constantly, uh, you know, thinking and writing about these things. But that's life. I, mean, that's not, I think when you work out who you are on stage in life, you think, well, maybe so that's what I need to be doing. Uh, rather than uh, working against yourself and saying, well, you know, I shouldn't be doing that. I'm destined to be this only. So, yeah. could we... Do you want some more coffee, by the way? Yeah, I'm fine. I've got about 20 minutes left, I think. Because we're, we're... We have to deliver, as it were, Miriam to the law school. <laughs> so now, this has to be done. Uh, could we go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, and think about your trajectory a bit? Because you trained as a lawyer initially, I think you said. So that's sort of out of school, out of high school, is that right? Uh, yes, I went. To, well, after secondary school, I suppose you could say. And I went, I Here in Britain? No, in, in Brussels. In Brussels. I, yeah. I was born in London, but I grew up in Brussels. I went to a European school. My parents worked for the European Commission. Uh -huh. yeah. and so, school, so you're a Euro brat. Everybody says that. I know. Your I was parents thinking, were Eurocrats, you... and you're a Euro. Well, brat. I, I wouldn't really describe it in that way. <laughs> That's my background. Right. And um, after school, I took a year off, um, and so I worked and travelled mostly in the United States for four months. And then I went to university after that year and 
an undergraduate degree in law and that my And then here in the UK, yeah. Northern England. Yeah. Then I've been there those three years. Can you explain to people who may not know the difference between a barrister and a solicitor? <laughs> Everybody asks me that as well. Um, used to be, I mean, when I was trained, I'm not back now, uh, that barristers had rights and audience and solicitors and people who prepared the cases and that's often grossly unfair, and also that distinction has eroded, I think probably now, and it's meaningless. Uh, because even when I was training, I think, uh, solicitors started to have an active audience in certain courts, and I think that has expanded. I think I, the reason I, I wanted to, to, to train um, is that I quite, I quite like the performance aspects of the law. And I also I thought after three years of the law. Thank you very much. Hi, Joe. This is Miriam. Hi. 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 So you quite like the performance part, so the idea of being a barrister. In those days, did you get training in law school about how to get up on your hind feet, as it were, um, and make a case as opposed to being a solicitor and declaring Was there a distinction in the education? Uh, really, um, I think there were. I Groups, you know, who took part in competitions. I never did that. Um, I, I actually just went to and did pupillages, um, mini pupillages, when I was, as I was still a student. Uh, in Sheffield, Manchester, and then here in London. And then I sat with a judge uh, in Manchester um, for, about, for a week um, to see what you know, to see what people he was, you know, what, what, that, what that was like. Um, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to. I didn't want to play uh, at. I thought the moot court seemed sort of. Um, I couldn't really take it that serious. That's an awful thing to say. I just, it didn't really appeal to me. So I just went to the courts and, and looked at cases and worked with barristers. And I did that throughout my undergraduate years. Um, in all, in all types of law, so because I wanted to see what the types of law were like. Yes. I, you know, I didn't have experience, I've never been to a court, I've never been to a prison. Um, when I was training uh, here in London, I think it was then in the court school of law. I was working at Mary Ward's Centre, the clinic. Um, they used to run these free pro bono clinics, three times a week. Bring in barristers and solicitors to give free legal advice. So I was a volunteer and I clerked in. Basically, what types of problems, you know, what areas of law they would need advice And that was fascinating because it was completely miles away. It was here, worlds away from what I was learning in law school. So I thought, right, well, I obviously need to be somehow on site to, to, to learn what I need to learn. And that, I think it's probably, you work out at some stage how, how you learn. And to, so, so you do that and then you pass the bar and then you go up to Scotland and you do this doctorate. Yeah, I spent a year of that uh, in Berlin. My, my PhD was comparative. I lived in Berlin and I liked it. So I went back after my PhD and lived there for another three years. Uh, doing post-doctoral work on citizenship, uh, immigration law, nationality um, law in Germany and Europe generally. And you've published some things on citizenship? Yeah, I've published a law book called The Impact of European Rights on National Legal Cultures. Um, but I published that when I was already in Florence, because after I was in Berlin, I moved to Florence to do some further, I 
and that's why I published the book and various art schools. And can, is it easy for people to find those things? It is. I mean, the, the book was published in 2004 by Heart Publishing. Um, it's available on Amazon uh, from, through the Heart Publishing website. I was surprised. The book did quite well. I <laughs> think usually I, I thought, yeah, who reads more books? Um, other than about ten of your colleagues, um, so I, no, it, I think also because I really, really um, strict myself in, in, in the way that I approach the, the research. Uh, I, mean, I, I edited it down, and it's far too long. First uh, because I was trying to factor in my experience certainly administrations uh, in Europe, because so I had lived in so many different countries and worked in, in different countries, um, and I saw the, the gap between the, the law and the law, and the experience of it. And I found, I found that tension somehow, the tension that I wanted just to, to write about, whilst not being too sort of um, anecdotal, or, I, I mean, I didn't feel comfortable enough to describe myself as a legal anecdotal. At the time, I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> And it really gets going in the 1970s, doesn't it? Administrative law yes. as a discrete area. It's not something that's classically part of legal education in the 1940s or 50s. Yeah. But, but certainly, yeah, well, 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 in the United Kingdom, I mean, I think it's definitely on the continent, and then it's more as part and parcel of the state formations, it's definitely on the second rise. Yeah, I remember when I was at undergraduate, I think the administrative law component of the public law course was great, it was, it was quite it was free. <laughs> but that was before the whole you know, Human Rights Act and all of the, you know, and this is you know, back in. 80s, early 90s. Yeah. So, um, but what I've always been interested in the experience of it, because I think that if you don't take that into account, uh, you're missing out in the central part of the picture. And, and so, I, when I was teaching my students in, in Italy, and I was a professor at the University of Siena, I would tell them all the time to go to the courts, to go to the administration, you know, the administrative offices, just to yeah. see what, what, what it's like. Um, it's one of the oddities that these very interesting fields such as legal anthropology and medical anthropology are often pretty invisible to professors of law and medicine, not afraid of and are rendered pretty invisible to their students. Right, right. It seems it's, it's a, well, it's a shame, and I think it, it comes, if, if, it, if the penny drops, it drops too late. Because you know, you'll hear from um, people like professors of medicine, they'll suddenly say, you know, I, I, I was shocked I, you know, when they had health problems and later on in life. So, you know, I went to see a doctor and uh, you know, I was treated a bit more. They just think, right, okay. You know, one of the reasons why the federal government of the United States started funding MD-PhDs was because they found that medical faculty in universities didn't know how to do research into anything. How they could provide clinical information, but that's not actually doing research in the sense of providing ongoing knowledge that manages to concatenate based on clinical evidence, clinical trials, other forms of science. And 
I think they thought the crisis is not so great now, but it was a really big issue going back. So, so you do the PhD and then you become this professor of law in various places. Well, first I did the PhD, then I was doing postdoctoral work, research fellowships, first in Berlin, Florence, then Siena. And then I went to New York. Um, I've always been a visiting scholar, a visiting assistant professor. Um, I've never had uh, a full professorship uh, anywhere until now. And so that gave me a lot of freedom and flexibility to also continue my work with the arts. Somehow, within the series, I'd say about eight years ago, um, I got to the stage of my life where I think like now I've qualified, I've published as, as a legal academic, I've practiced as, as a uh, I feel now the need to, to get back to my work as a musician, that's why I started working on my first album. I thought it was a shame not to commit to it. Um, I, I mean, I think that, in a way, I regret having, having given up music a bit when I was training, but it was very hard to, to maintain those inside yes. life. I think your training and practice is so consuming. Um, and I got to that stage in my early 30s and I thought, well, no, this should be now a time where I can take my and worked on the music, and then I became interested in dance. Are there particular themes in the music that you produce in your album? Always. Because uh, they reflect probably the things that I'm, I'm thinking about at that time. I started off as a uh, singer-songwriter, really. And my first album was a sort of singer-songwriter um, format, and so is the second. Although there's a slippage in the second where you can see, you can hear, I think, um, where I started to come into the instrumental music and have such confused music and dance classes. I became interested in that format. So I moved away from text and I moved away from the song. I, I, when I was living in New York, I was performed in various venues. I was still performed by singer songwriter songs just to kind of check into that and not, you know, not forget about it. But I love the, I prefer the improvisation that goes on. I love the instrumental opportunities. I just love the music all the time. It seems to be a shame to align myself with that and just say, I'm here to do some legal research and I'll just do some games every so often. My third album actually recorded in Europe. And what are the albums called? The first album uh, is called We're Inside Out. Uh, second is Transito. Third is Muerte Ballerina, which is the one I did in New York, which is basically a fusion of improvised jazz and flamenco, which are derivatives thereof. And the fourth album is the soundtrack to Lost the World. So, um, I don't know, I, I sort of feel quite happy about that. I mean, it, it's been the last couple of years, I would say, been exhausting because I don't think you can dedicate yourself seriously to people's research and art and have a social life or have a life. It comes to a stage where it just, it, it, it just does, you know, it just consumes you, but I'm aware that it's really now or never. Um, 
Sounds like a song itself. Well, I'm sure it's been done before, you know, written about, and I'm sure it's, it's not really, you know, the whole company and fertilizing and that level, but we tend to get and when I was a child, the dream, like the first time I went to New York was 16, and I thought, I to the notation doesn't say it just, yeah, change you meet it and you learn. And also, if you have questions that you know, set up a sort of real like a research agenda, well, questions that you're trying to address, he's, he's no um, and it comes to your work, and that's what such a lot approach also to the whole copyright question is that there's a tendency to think that, you know, we can should be creative by themselves, it shouldn't be boring, you know, it's a very, very sort of difficult where music's concerned, a very restrictive approach to it. And I love to be able to actually experience how I recently enrolled a choreographer for a dancer in the 70s who still teaches every day. Uh, and then the dance well, and it was fantastic so because we would meet once a week and I was working with you know, certain peaks and I was taking classes as well. And I could right. see some of the ideas that we'd worked on come through in the classes. And it made me smart. I didn't feel I didn't feel like you should be doing that because it's my that's my idea. Without trying to advocate advocate to just just basically just do it. That's I felt so frustrated about it. my time in NYU we looked that copyright. And music and dance and films and all that sort of This is making me impressed. Being asked to take a side. That's not the point, you know, it's better that they don't get shelled out. Really, and somehow honour the teachers that you have, and I think the teachers much in the sort of, you know, top-down approach, because everybody teaches you. We teach more students, teaching, it's so, uh, an openness and there's an exchange. They teach you. And that's all we're trying. And that's life. Everywhere you can, can be somebody else. That's a big one. On top of the 14. And I think it's interesting in terms of in a work context. So you just enjoy it. Just the ones on the wall. No, no, that's the ones. That's right. And you're moving on now to an academic job full-time, right? In July, is it? I, I think it's always been full-time. That's why I don't sleep much, and I don't have social work. Um, and yes, middle of July, I'm moving to Heidelberg, which works for Max Planck Institute, on a particular research project on global administrative law. Um, so, Gal. 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 Yeah, that's right. Um, so I've, I've, you know, it's a field that I've been in the last one agenda. 
So, I think that the advantage for me is that the work on the lab and the performance of Lost for Words is anyway, so you've got, so you've got now Lost for Words is performed in its own right. And um, once the next year or so, we're looking to license it for a few site specific things. License it so that it can be done. <laughs> you know, I, can, I don't necessarily have to be there, you know, that would be the ultimate um, So, you know, basically, it's to approach my work as, as a philosopher. Yes, in, in the, the way that we're going to make it one of the I will run some labs, um, but, but less than in New York. At the moment, you know, I have a huge body of work that has come from films and music, dance pieces and performance art pieces. And then I want to, to basically see that it has to run, you know, this phase of the project now has to be implemented. Um, the thing that consumes me the most is the creative process and the administrative process. I spend so much time on that. And once that's done, um, you know, it frees up enough for that amazing amount of time. So, yeah, you know, I, I, my route to hiding that would be part of the when they were still prices, they got a quote from and it's close to Frankfurt, you know, also I come through in the and in all of the arts. And I think that, that curiosity, uh, should be another six. Yeah. And when that happens, it's all the time. And in terms of the lab and the Lost Words project and so on, is there a website people can go to that there is, yeah, to some of these adventures. Absolutely, there's a blog um, called, it's, it's a WordPress blog, set up specifically for the last words. It has, you know, all of the archives, it has some films, it has the references from the application. It also has this segment called Answers on a Postcard, where I encourage people to write to me, or send a film, or dance, you know, Seeing or anything, uh, you know, it's basically try and share with, with us what is the project, how they see, how they understand the things to words. Uh, it, I like the idea because also, I mean, after the premiere in New York, I filmed a couple of people and I would just ask them you know, in a minute, tell me, what did you see, what did you think? And it was fantastic because it it sort of opened up the whole section of the events. And if you're in part of it, you don't see it so much. Or you see it and halfway through you think, this is going to be over in half an hour, I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> um, and particularly because I was doing, I, I felt I was doing everything. I was directing it, I had choreographed I'm structuring the improvisation, um, I'm managing the participation of the spectators, you know, and that has to be managed and make sure that nobody gets hurt. I'm singing, I, I sort of felt I was completely multitasking and it was great, but I think I got to say, I'd love to hear from other people how they experienced it. Um, so, you know, the days after the, the premiere, I filmed some people, I talked to some people, get feedback and I realise you can never know how something's going to come across. That's a wonderful, wonderful experience.
goes further along, we can meet again and also perhaps record another podcast looking at what's happened in these other aspects of the world. We get protected. Thank you. Uh, these other aspects of the world can catch up. Thank you so much.